Hey, this is Timothy Brown, co-designer of the Dark Sun Universe, and you're listening to Bone, Stone, and Obsidian, the Dark Sun Podcast. This is Bone, Stone, and Obsidian. My name's Wayne. And I'm Robert. And uh, we've got something special for you guys today, for all the listeners out there. We are going to be talking about... No, okay, I'm not going to do that really bad joke. Uh, What we do have is we do have a special guest today. Robert was able to talk to our guest beforehand and ask him to come onto our show, and he didn't flat turn him down. So I consider that a plus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, Robert, why don't you introduce our guest? Uh, I think some people might know actually know his name. <laughs> yeah. So, our guest today, I'm very, uh, very excited to talk to Tim Brown. He is the co-designer of Dark Sun. I'm sure you, if you're listening to this podcast, you know that name. He was also had a hand in 2300 AD. He was the director of creative services at TSR, uh, supervising the best of AD&D game worlds, including Ravenloft and Planescape. He was a brand manager for Pinnacle Entertainment Group and once ran his own successful Kickstarter to launch a new game, Dragon Kings, which is how I met Tim. I did social media for him there. And now he is the studio director for Ulysses North America and is responsible for the Torg Eternity, Wrath and Glory, the Dark Eye and Fading Suns lines. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, man. I'm exhausted just listening to all of that. Wow. <laughs> it is a it is a story. <laughs> Tim can go home now. I think we've, we've covered everything. <laughs> well, I'm so pleased you, you reached out to me and I'm, I'm glad to be uh, on the show. This is way cool. Like we said, you know, Tim is one of the co-designers of Dark Sun, him and Troy Denning, but let's have him kind of start from the beginning and uh, tell us what he knows about Dark Sun. So how did you, you know, before you got to Dark Sun, how did you start working at TSR? Okay, so way back in the late 70s, I got hooked up with the guys at uh, Game Designers Workshop down in Illinois, and uh, they let me hang around and playtest all kinds of board games, and uh, I just kind of made a nuisance of myself until they let me start doing a little bit of writing and actually designing some things for Traveler and uh, other RPGs they were working on, uh, later Space 1889, but in the interim, I did the, uh, I got to have a, a heavy hand in making the uh, 2300 AD universe, which is a pretty hard science fiction game, especially for its day, uh, which was a ton of fun uh, and had a great time. I learned a lot from all the great guys at Game Designers Workshop, from Mark Miller and Frank Chadwick and Rich Banner, uh, Lauren Wiseman, uh, John Harshman, uh, a lot of really talented fellows who were making games of all sorts and role-playing games. And yeah, I worked there for, I think, ultimately like 15 years. And I got an opportunity to move just one state away and take a job with TSR. And that just seemed like uh, the thing to do at the time. And uh, I made my way up to TSR as a designer and editor in 1989 and immediately began working on the sorts of games that in those days they made the the newest people work on. So I got to work on like Buck Rogers projects and all this other stuff, top secret (laughs) uh, role-playing supplements and things like that. The cream of of what they had to offer in those days was was, uh, certainly laid upon my desk and I was, it was time for me to finish or design these things as we went. But um, yeah, in, in, in doing that, I met a lot of great people there. Of course, my, my fine mentor, Jim Ward, who took me under his wing and, and showed me the way of how things are done at TSR and, and brought me along. And as opportunities arose, I jumped at them. And one of those opportunities was to create a whole new game universe for the second edition game. That was what was out at that time. And we really had a blank slate to work on that. And that is what eventually became Dark Sun. 
Nice, nice. So like, how did you get your actual job at TSR? Like, did you was there like an ad you saw? Or did you uh, submit stuff to Dragon? Like, how did you actually get your foot in the door there? I actually did it the sort of the old fashioned way. I, I met people from TSR at conventions and made note of those uh, acquaintances. And when I felt like I really wanted to make a change professionally, I just sort of reached out and having a professional resume within the business really stood me in good stead. And uh, I really, you know, at the time, I was quite nervous. I didn't think they would, they would possibly accept me into what I, what I felt at the time was a vastly more professional operation <laughs> than maybe I was used to. But it turned out I, I, I was, I was a little delusional there. They might have been, they were bigger, but certainly in the ultimate, you know, not to, not to badmouth anybody, but it was, it was the same kind of business just on a larger scale. And I, I fit in quite well. So yeah, I didn't really see an ad or anything like that. I just, I just sort of knocked on the door and said, Hey, can I work for you? And I guess I was a little bit fortunate because back in those days, uh, TSR being a bigger company there, you know, they were very, they had a large staff, but were also very budget conscious. And I experienced this even in my time there, but they, uh, they would basically go in yearly patterns where say one year they would hire a lot of staff writers because they wanted greater control over the products they were creating. And then the end of that year would come and the accountants would say, oh my God, we're spending way too much on, on salary. So they would pare that number back and mm-hmm. get a bunch of freelancers instead. Yeah. And then that year would go by and the creative directors would say, my God, we have no control over what we're doing. And, and the cycle <laughs> would repeat itself and repeat itself. And I happened to be knocking on the door at, at one of those, one of those, uh, uh, I don't know if that's a wave or a trough, but at one of those points when, when they said, oh, we need more bodies in the door and in I swept. So yeah, it was, it was fun. It was, it's uh, one thing I really liked about TSR in those days is they, as a group, were playing a lot of games all the time. There was, everybody was in a couple of role-playing games after hours, be that a TSR thing or not a TSR thing, didn't matter. And then every day up in the, what the, the second floor of their building at the time was largely cubicle land for designers and editors. And in the games library off of that, where most people ate lunch, they also played games all the way through lunch, nice. um, uh, often to a, a an extended lunch hour of, of an hour and a half or two hours. And if Jim Ward was playing, it might go all afternoon. So um, just a whole bunch of gaming was going on. And that, that just really, uh, really was, I just found it really inspiring. You learned a lot. There was a lot more. It was an environment that really encouraged playing a lot of games just to keep up with, you know, what's the competition doing? So get out there and learn it. And uh, honestly, I haven't really seen that kind of an environment or I hadn't until I did some work in the computer game business where they did the same kind of thing, encouraged a lot of, you know, play what else is out there because we've got to keep up with exactly with what the competition is doing. But but back in those days at TSR, it it was a ton of fun. So yeah, that got me in the door. And very quickly, the overall design department had a tremendous latitude in creating the kind of game and the kind of setting uh, material for the existing game worlds uh, without really any guidance to speak of really from other parts of the company, not even from marketing. Marketing just sold what we made. Right. and uh, But where we did get direction was from, from the top down, and I experienced this in my early days there, uh, they said, well, we, we have reason to believe that we are going to need in the marketplace a whole new game universe for AD&D second edition. So you guys should invent one. And and that was really all the guidance there was. Now, at the time, now this was 1990 or 91 at this point, and uh, 
the impetus for that was that they had some kind of forecasting, God knows what it was, that uh, <laughs> they thought the Dragonlance universe, which was only, I don't know, scant five or six years old at that point, they thought it was going to die. They thought it was going <laughs> to just fade from existence and this would open up this hole in our schedule and we needed a new game universe to to fill that. And, and as history showed, uh, Dragonlance never, of course, went away. And, and, mm-hmm. and it's in many ways as strong as it ever was in, in, in fan affection and lore and everything else. And, and we kept making game products for that for years. But, but it was based on that ultimately false assumption that they came to the design department and asked for a, a new universe. And they came into, I, I remember specifically, it, uh, there was a conference room and uh, they came in and uh, I think it was Jim, Jim Ward said, you know, that we need to make this new universe and who wants to volunteer to work on that? And, and no hands went up and, oh, wow. and I couldn't get this, but my little hand in the back of the room, hey, I'd like to work on some new universe. That would be great. And ultimately, Troy joined in as well. And I found out later that some of the people who had been working there, who had, I get, you know, had they'd been through sort of the Gary Gygax years, they had been through the transition to new ownership, they had been through the trials and tribulations of making the second edition of the game, and there was a, there was a lot more burnout, I guess, than I I realized maybe at the time, and that's why a lot of the key guys there, like I think Jeff Grubb and Zeb Cook, didn't didn't just leap on this opportunity themselves. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. they, I think they were happy to let some of the other guys do it. And at this point, Troy was just, he was only recently hired back in. He had gone away from TSR uh, and worked at Pace Setter for, for some years and then came back to TSR. So in that sense, he was new back in the equation. And he and I sort of, like I said, raised our hands and said, well, we'll start working on this. And we, we started with just some notions that we wanted to create something that was not another sort of Tolkien-esque fantasy universe. So we looked at all the existing game worlds for the second edition game at the time, and there was Greyhawk, and there was Dragonlance, and there was the Forgotten Realms. And love them all, and they've all got great things to say about them, but they're all basically Tolkien-esque fantasy, very much in the in the sure. frame of what the second edition game gives you to play with, with elves and dwarves and, and, and magic users and all of that. But we thought, Troy and I, that we had a really blank slate and let's go a different direction. And uh, we started out with a working title. We were just going to call this War World because we thought if, con- if if we make a world that's just naturally in greater conflict, maybe we can come up with something there. And 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 so the War World concept, which eventually became Dark Sun, began in those in those humble times. And there was also, uh, coincidentally, we had a relatively young artist on the staff at the time who had followed, you know, Elmore and Parkinson and those guys. So uh, a young guy that was very new to the staff, but had a great style and had, had made some really crazy art that was, you know, very evocative of, of something new and unique and exciting. And that was that was Gerald Brom, who was who was very junior at the time. And we we uh, we wanted to get him on staff and or, or, or on that team, if you will. And uh, there was really nothing more to it than talking to him. He thought that'd be great. We asked, everybody agreed. Then they said, run off and make us this universe. And, and, and that's what we did. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where it got started. And, uh, and, and, and you all see where it ended up. <laughs> that's a huge, huge blank slate. Yeah. Yeah. Where did those like first sessions and, and, and like up to a year, you know, I'm sure it took you guys a year or something like that. If you said this is the 90s uh, or the like 1990 and it came out in 91. So what did those kind of that first year look like or really the first couple months? How did you sort of start laying the foundations of what would be Dark Sun? Like what inspirations did you have? You know, obviously it's very, you know, Mad Max, very John Carter and Mars. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, and I imagine that a lot of people would understand those those inspirations. But was there any inspirations that maybe are not so obvious? 
Well, I think we decided that if we didn't necessarily have to invent a whole new genre of fantasy, we should just take our game down a path that has probably already been explored, just never with the AD&D game at that point. And so we went more with um, sword and sandal sort of stuff like uh, like Conan and, and John Carter and things of that nature, uh, where uh, there was a far more uh, heroic aspect uh, to it that um, we, we just took those things as more of our influence to create something that would be kind of more um, a little a little more dangerous and a little more desperate all the time. So that's why we, we tried to make the environment more dangerous, the environment less hospitable. Um, those are those are some of our earliest thoughts. And and again with so much of the war world concept where we wanted a whole lot of conflict all the time, a lot of our original thinking was around how are we going to incorporate all of that stuff and a lot of our early thought was guided by the fact that we had a really great relationship with Rall Partha miniatures in those days. Rall Partha would make any miniature we wanted and, and put it out for the AD&D line. And we were on the cusps of putting out a new edition of the Battle System game. Mm-hmm. Battle System being an AD&D mass combat miniatures game that had already had a previous edition, but we were putting out a new edition to match up more with the second edition of the role-playing game. That was in the works as well. So our original sure. thinking was that uh, much of the play style would mimic more of a Conan sort of thing, where from one adventure to the next, your character might be destitute and then very quickly thereafter have some money, even be part of, a, of some kind of an army that's fighting some other army, and then your army is destroyed and you're back destitute and running for your life, that sort of thing. And and that role playing and and these miniature sessions might mesh more cleanly. In the, and you'll see a lot of the vestiges of that in the original, uh, some of the original Dark Sun products. There was a lot of battle system stats in there for different things. And yeah. that, that game line never took off as well as anybody thought that it might. We thought it might be a bigger deal, but we never really competed with a marketplace that ultimately Warhammer Fantasy dominated with all those great minis and stuff that they were doing through Citadel. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those early sessions were a lot about that stuff. And and I guess the other key element was that at first we probably went too far afield with our notion that let's create something that will be very unlike the existing AD&D second edition. So much so that our original thinking was we were going to create, aside from humans, we were going to scrap all the other player character races and probably classes and create all new ones. And in that, we were we were very much inspired by a game out at the time called Jorun, where there were all these exotic uh, new alien life forms and the art in that game really made us think we, we can do that too. And we can make something that, that just starts from scratch. And, and we, we, we spent an awful lot of time trying to create all that stuff and, and just kept running into so many problems with mm-hmm. it. And then, and, and frankly, a lot of the other designers and stuff on the team, and when they would look over our shoulders to see what we're up to, we got a lot of commentary that that, that might be taking the game a little too far afield. So nobody in marketing ever said, yeah, you can't do that. But more more the other guys on the staff, uh-huh. the other people on the staff mm-hmm. sort of gave us a little guidance. And, and we pulled back from that. So instead of just ditching all of them, we thought we'd keep them, but turn them all on their heads and make them all really strange and different. Keep them largely in name only, but but mm-hmm. uh, change them all around. Which is why the dwarves are so different, why the elves are so different, the halflings are cannibals, all of that good stuff, which which ultimately got us, frankly, a lot of great press in the <laughs> early days, right? Wow, they've, they've done all these weird things with elves and halflings. And, yeah. So, yeah, you know, yeah. all those things, you know, came, came to light. 
Yeah. So the races, you know, you're saying you were saying how, how different they are. Was there anything that didn't make it that you really liked that just ended up getting cut for, you know, for whatever reason? I would say, uh, yeah, I probably just touched on that. It, uh, what got cut were some of the other races that we started to invent, which which ultimately um, okay. started to have a, a, a pretty strange and sort of sci-fi feel to the whole thing. And and as I look back on it, those things that we were creating in those days were, were starting to make the whole thing feel a little more like Frank Herbert to Dune, if anything. That's my recollection anyway, okay. with uh, the navigators and weird, weird life forms like that. We got so far on our thinking that a lot of those strange exotic life forms were very specialized in their tasks. So here's mm-hmm. a here's a whole race, and all they basically do is move shit around, you know, stuff like that, and uh, those kinds of things. I, I wish we'd have worked some more of that maybe back into it, just because it was new and unique. But but I'm happy with how it all turned out as well. So don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So kind of on the other side, then what's something that is in Dark Sun that you think that people miss? Maybe that's not highlighted as much as you would have liked. Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, for me, I guess if if I had personally continued to work as a designer on Dark Sun, it had always been my intention to take the world in a fashion where sort of if if you start exploring out on the map, you would have found that ultimately that region of the world that's represented on the original Dark Sun map is sort mm. of the point furthest from a gigantic sort of thrycrene Roman empire that was kind of dominating a huge part of the rest of the world. And Mm -hmm. had I been able to design, you know, spend the time to design in that direction, then the original Dark Sun setting would be sort of the test bed where you create your characters and whatnot, and they learn the world and all of that, but then ultimately travel out. And again, in a very much John Carter sort of way, become the first humans to make deep inroads into this extremely alien environment that's that's largely Mm -hmm. insect based on the essentially the far side of the world. But uh, mm, interesting, interesting, yeah. They did some of that with Thrycreen of Athis. So mm-hmm, did that yeah. sort of ma- match up? Yeah, it, it it sort of touched on that, and I, you know, ultimately uh, that's where I would have taken it had had I remained uh, a strong contributor on the design team as it as it went forward. But I didn't do that. Instead, I accepted promotion. And- <laughs> Uh, so you had designed the original box set yeah, on Troy. Dragon Kings. Uh, you did some yeah. work on Monstrous Compendium 2. Sure. Um, and then, like you said, you went on to other duties. You were still there, though, when uh, when the uh, box set was revised, or had you moved on from TSR by that point? That was a, They were pretty much simultaneously. So the box set was getting revised, and then I parted ways with TSR in 1995 or 6, as I recall. And uh, they... You know, they wanted a new edition of the game just because it was a, it was a strong game world. It, it was, in fact, record setting uh, at its time for building up an audience as quickly as it did and finding acceptance. And a lot of people were playing it. I personally argued against the need for an extensive new edition. But by that time, those things were sort of being handled beyond my control. So but what what I did do in the interim is, is after principal design on the main box set and whatnot, I became a product group leader where I had a close hand in the development of several game lines, including Ravenloft and Planescape and Spelljammer and Dark Sun, but wasn't a day-to-day writer on any of them at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and much of my function was, was uh, 
relegated to the the day-to-day activities of production and making sure this stuff all got printed and released and and properly packaged for the marketing department and all of that stuff so so we were relying on a lot of other writers and and i'm glad to that, that you know to have it gone that way and and then they all got to put their stamp on the game as it went forward doesn't necessarily mean it all went the way that i would have done it had i kept writing for instance i, I touched on what i might have done had i had a data principal writer on the project. But yeah, it, it started breathing a life of its own and got a lot of new people working on it with Shane Hensley and Bill Slavisek and some other people who did, uh, you know, uh, Rich Baker did some terrific design work on, on a lot of different products as it went forward. So, so, so there it was. Yeah. So talking about those sorts of things, like what did you think about the way they expanded the revised box set to kind of include the North and to add two Sorcerer Kings? Basically, like what were your ideas on the Sorcerer Kings before then? Did you sort of think that there would be more of them? Or did you think that the the, the ones you had were uh, all there were at the time? Um, when we did the original conceptualization for those, we sort of, you know, tied each dragon king to a di- an individual city. And it was our original intention that that would be all that there was. Um, when Troy and I were working on those things and kind of sorting that out. But, um, I, I, you know, I didn't have an objection to expanding it out because, um, you know, there's there's always room for sure. new creative ideas in, in all this stuff. We didn't have a... Mm-hmm. A scheme in mind that said there's only there's just these seven and and any more would unbalance it in some way. So I was I was fine to see it conceptually, and I was fine to see the um, map expansions as well because quite frankly everybody was clamoring for map expansions. And I think at yeah. some point in an interview way back when, keep in mind this was all pre-internet, so it was hard to get word around. But I think Troy came out and said, you know, this map really is only the size of Colorado, mm-hmm. and uh, and and that set all kinds of, of people off going, my God, then the, the, you know, the whole rest of this area must be gigantic. There must be loads of additional stuff to explore. And, and, and so the, the impetus for fans to want to know what's more beyond the borders was huge. We were always getting pressed for that. And of course, it was also a time there, was, there were rumors that Athos was somehow the Forgotten Realms further in the future. And some people even wrote in and, and wrote articles, as I recall, saying, that, you know, if you lay the maps over one another through a light table, you see where the cities line up. And it's like, that wasn't our intention at all. That's just absurd. But um, but it, it's nice that people were thinking along those lines. I mean, that, that's all good, but we certainly weren't. Um, but, uh, you know, it certainly was a fantasy world that was in, in decline, and that's why it's in this rough shape. And, and uh, uh, the over, you know, for me, it was kind of an ecological thing. I, I liked, I you know, I kind of sort of created the defiling magic sort of this thing and, and clearly the overuse of magic in this this world or certainly this area of the world had it was was uh, a clear contributor to its to its uh, arid state at this point so but uh, yeah that was fun <laughs> nice so um I got to ask, you know, one of the things that came up in fourth edition mm-hmm. uh, was the idea of gnolls mm-hmm. uh, in Dark Sun. And, you know, we went back and looked and they were not anywhere, you know, mentioned. Uh, they were also, though, not, you know, they were also not mentioned to not be there. Uh, <laughs> what do you think about gnolls in Dark Sun? Um, I, I, you know, I've, I've not played the fourth edition stuff. I know about the gnolls being introduced to uh, the game. I, you know, I'm not sure it was a great choice, but um, uh, I, I don't have, really have an objection. But as we started moving along uh, with the initial development of the game, 
and resigned ourselves to putting the core character races back in, even if they're in a twisted form. Many of the monsters we created, we certainly thought that, my God, this is, this is such an environment to create a whole raft of new monsters and creatures that seem more unique to the environment. And I don't have a strong feeling about this, but it probably would have been all the effort that was put into putting Knowles in there uh, might have been better served creating something a little more you know, new and unique and, and exciting and very peculiar to the uh, Dark Sun universe. But, you know, again, not, I don't have a strong objection to it in any way. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's just always interesting. That was one of those things. It, it always brings a, uh, a good conversation when, when people start talking about that. Um, <laughs> so after you did Dark Sun, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you went on to do some other things. You, if, you, if people want to go look at uh, RPGGeek.com and search for Tim Brown, um, and we'll put the, the link in the show notes. But you, you've written a ton of stuff for, you know, for Pathfinder, for third edition, all kinds of stuff out there for a bunch of other games as well. Mm -hmm. um, so Tim has a really, really long list of, of stuff he written for and a few years ago it came back around and you know the age of kickstarter came around and you ended up coming up with the spiritual successor for dark sun and you call that dragon kings mm -hmm. um you know we've heard that name before the dragon kings so if people are interested in that you can check that out tim and i also did a couple of podcasts about dragon kings um but we also talked a bit about dark sun in there too so i think there's a couple of uh you know a few <laughs> mentions of dark sun in the dragon kings podcast definitely go check that out again we'll put those links in the show notes Awesome. So was there anything in Dragon Kings that had been put on the back burner for Dark Sun that really never made it in that you, you know, I mean, I guess you're talking about that you wanted more Thrykreen action. And there's definitely more of that seems like with the, with the uh, what are they called? The uh, Kikri, Kiri? Uh, I can't remember the name now. But the, the insect men in, in uh, Dragon Kings. Crickets. Crickets. There you go. Yeah. Well, I thought that was, a, that was such a strong theme, and and, and uh, with the with the Thrykreen, and I always loved the Thrykreen in A D and D, and they were they were part of uh, various uh, they were in a monstrous compendium before we ever started working on uh, Dark Sun, mm -hmm. and they just seemed like such a natural that they would be part of that environment, and uh, I was always intrigued by it, but and. and uh, with respect to everything that was written in Thrykreen of Athos, the bizarre uh, physiology and lifestyle and everything else of a, of a of a theoretically intelligent insectoid creature seemed to me to be extremely intriguing, just on a personal level, would be very interesting to explore in a role-playing setting, and to date hadn't been really dived into maybe to the depth that I wanted to. So with the Krikus in, in my Dragon King setting, we tried, you know, I, I tried very much to get a little deeper in that. And I, I sought out a lot of uh, professional assistance to create a lot more intricate detail about how that society might come together and how they might operate and be really, really alien to deal with rather than just bug men that you can talk to and trade with normal. So in that sense, uh, uh, that that gave me an outlet, an opportunity to explore that kind of thing in a, in a in a deeper detail than I, than I was ever allowed to, uh, just by circumstance, than I, than I ever got a chance to, I should say, in the dark sun day. I really wanted to explore more options of what what I think a central theme that's that's always comes back to me in, in all of the things I design and work on in a fantasy setting is that I always I always come back to that magic is, is so much the most powerful thing out there, magic that just pervades these these fantasy worlds. And uh I've always been drawn to the notion that the use of magic should have should have consequences. And the original AD&D second edition really didn't have anything like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I remember, uh, you know, when when Zeb Cook made the Conan role playing game, not too long before I actually came to work at TSR, he had, you know, at least touched on that where if a wizard sort of botched 
things, weird things would happen to that wizard. And suddenly he would have a, a pointed ear or, or one of his eyes would turn into a frog's eye or some some crazy stuff. I can't remember. So just some little chart someplace. And, uh-huh. and that, that kind of stuck with me and, and that grew with me. And in the design of the Dark Sun universe, I, I turned that into how defiling magic works, that it just destroys all the surrounding vegetation to to zap power from that. And, and, it, and it leaves this terrible mark upon the world every time you, you use that kind of sorcery. But that that didn't scratch my entire itch in in that neighborhood. So as I as I worked on the Dragon King's universe, I thought here's an outlet where I can really I can really let my freak flag fly in that regard and uh, and really invent some a, a lot more nuanced and uh, personally destructive uh, sort of love hate relationship between a, a spellcaster and his uh, and the magic that he needs. So um, you know. I'd love to talk more about that at some point, uh, or you can, you know, check out the game, figure out what's going on there. But uh, those those are probably the two principal things that I thought. Well, I, I really want to explore these more, and I, I needed a I needed a playpen, and they weren't going to sell me back Dark Sun. Trust me, <laughs> I asked, and uh, uh, and 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 not having that, you know, I had to kind of make my own thing. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. So after, you know, I think just this last year, another rule set came out for or not came out, but kind of started to get kickstarted for Dragon Kings. And that's the 5e rule set. So part of part of the Dragon Kings Kickstarter was that that we did a bunch of rule sets. We did the Pathfinder or or 3.5, whatever it was. There was a D6 and there was a Savage Worlds. So we did a bunch of rule sets for that. 5e hadn't had an OGL out yet, so we couldn't really do anything with that. Mm -hmm. But recently there was a Kickstarter to put out 5th edition that hasn't quite come out yet, but the Kickstarters, you know, was well funded and um, it's exciting to see a couple other things come out for Dragon Kings. Uh, How much involvement did you have in that? Uh, I've had uh, certainly the involvement of uh, giving my blessing and permission because uh, that's, that's all stuff that I own. And, and as I've been approached by people who want to create more in that arena, uh, so long as that person comes to me with uh, what I think are intriguing new ideas, then I'm, I'm very open to letting that kind of thing go on. So yeah, the uh, 5e rule set is going to come out. Um, uh, there's a whole lot of new monsters in the works that are sort of associated with that project and uh, just things to, to bring breathe new life into that. It is someday we're go- I'm going to find the time and uh, brain space to bring all of that stuff a little more together into a, into some sort of more unified publishing environment. I'm not exactly sure what that'll be, but uh, you know, I was very proud of what I ended up getting created for Dragon Kings, and uh, it's it's something I want to return to with the fuller force of my uh, my creative efforts at some point before too much time gets away from. Me. Great, great. Actually, along those lines, uh, I know there's there's been a lot of rumors going on, and uh, I think by the time this is actually released, <laughs> we'll probably we'll probably already know some of that. But Wizards has has basically hinted that there's going to be some uh, return to some of these these campaign settings that we haven't mm-hmm. seen since since early on. And let's say that uh, you know you don't have to tell us anything, <laughs> but let's say that Dark Sun is, sure. is released. Um, would you consider going back to? I'm just saying, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I might. I, I don't know, but. If it does return, then the likelihood is it will be available for uh, DMs Guild. Would you consider, you know, working something in there in in that kind of medium? 
I can't say that I would be anxious to work again in the Dark Sun setting. Um, I'm glad for the effort that I put into it, its original conception and everything like that. Uh, having been away from it for so long, I'm not sure that the things I would want to do with it would, quite frankly, meet fan approval at this point. But um, the other side of that coin is I am gainfully employed, and I'm not sure where I would actually find the time to do anything like that. that anyway, I'm far more interested <laughs> these days in in producing things where I have a freer hand, if you will, that I could just create, you know, right out of my head and, and you know, let the chips fall where they may. And I, th- I think if I if I got into environment writing for Dark Sun again, I, even though I'm so heavily involved in its original creation, I would still feel quite hemmed in, quite frankly, trying to uh, trying to fit within the guidelines that, that even, even though that I created some of those guidelines, um, <laughs> it wouldn't be as free form. So, so probably not, probably not. Cool. So let's uh, let you know we got a lot of uh, a lot of fan questions. Okay. Uh, let's start moving in that direction here. So, sure. Um, Andy Alexandru, who is creating, uh, he's creating the scavenger world, which uh, I'm helping him out with, and it's a a world that is definitely inspired by Dark Sun. Oh, great. Uh, and so he asked the question, "What was some of the inspirations of Dark Sun themes?" Obviously, we we've talked about some mm-hmm, of that, mm-hmm. but he wa- also wants to know how and what was the process of actually world building. You know, how did you decide there were going to be seven city states how did you decide it was going to be a desert world that sort of thing i suppose the overriding theme there is as we were world building we we were using the same kinds of tools that others had gone before us who had created say Greyhawk or forgotten realms and with most of those tools in hand we just we, we picked some large themes and and the two that probably got the two large themes that guided us at that time is we wanted a a more war-torn environment, and that that led to the whole idea of the whole war world thing, which, if you look, really didn't pan out. It wasn't wasn't necessarily a big war world when we finally ended up with it. But the other was the theme that the environment itself was especially dangerous. That that simple survival became extremely important to the day-to-day activities of your of your character. You really had to pay attention to such things as do I have enough water to cross this part of the desert? What are we going to eat? And since everybody's kind of on the desperate side, the, the banditry in the open wilderness was far more likely. So just an overall, you know, that danger and desperation that we wanted to have. And where, as I've said, sort of the war world thing did not really pan out as designs, as the design went further and further along towards publication. More of that, more of that stuff kind of faded out of the, out of the picture. But mm-hmm. if anything, uh, everybody involved, from, right from the art to the you know, to the adventures design and everything else, everybody embraced the whole danger, desperation, and, you know, savage nature of the environment. Everybody embraced that and the fans embraced it too. They kind of, you know, they seem to have liked that. We got that out there. So I would say those are the themes of world building and uh, I hope that helps him out. Christopher Justin Moneymaker asks, um, what were you thinking when you came up with the animalistic stage of the dragon metamorphosis? <laughs> uh, the whole idea that the DM should take the character away from, from the player for several levels was was pretty heavy, heavy-handed. So what, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, it was heavy-handed. And I didn't mind that it was heavy-handed at the time, but I also wasn't uh, dearly in love with the character that was going to go through it. So um, <laughs> I think that that's probably an idea in hindsight that if I could go back, what I would do is I would set up some parameters where... I'm a more mature game designer now, so I would probably take and, and reinvent that system so that as the as those characters went through that animalistic stage, that the DM could have potential control and there'd be far more of some sort of a bargaining chip system between the player and the DM about certain decisions. And, you know, the more desperate the situation, the more damaged the character, the more likely it's going to have that almost DM-controlled animalistic decision and only under 
under, only under better circumstances does the player control it. More of a Jekyll Hyde sort of thing through that period that would just make it, again, far more interesting for role playing and and not so, as, as you said, heavy handedly just, just take that control away. So, um, so there you go. I, I think well interpreted there, Lars, well interpreted. Or uh, Christopher, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So with that, you know, the one of the cool things about Dragon Kings was mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, you know, it allowed players to go really high level and to, to have those metamorphoses, whether they were elementals or the Evangians or dragons. Mm-hmm. Did you play in any games, you know, aside from playtesting, where where you were actually playing characters of the high level or, or DMing those games? Honestly, no. We never played game, ultimate campaigns that ever went really that far into character development. So anything we did along those lines were, were playtest sessions where we just kind of got all the stuff out and, and, and made some scenarios and situations mm-hmm. and sort of played those things out in more of a playtest kind of way. Because, you know, I, I, frankly, I don't know how you get that many million experiences points to be honest with you but but people manage <laughs> right and that's how they that's how they get these things up to those levels um but yeah we didn't while we played a lot of games we didn't play quite that much you know what i mean so so yeah it was, it was far more a, a play testing experience yeah. uh-huh. uh let's see uh lars basically asked any changes that you would uh make to the classes or core concepts of dark sun if you could if you could rethink it you know i imagine a lot of that went into dragon kings but you got anything else with that well, like I said, I touched on how I, I would have gone to more depth with like the Thrycrene and the insects elsewhere on the planet. And I probably would have introduced a lot more nuance and variation to the consequences of using magic in the universe. Those are definitely things that I, that I would have done. I think also we introduced psionics into the Dark Sun universe. Again, not, you know, uh, we did that largely because the book to reinvent psionics for the second edition of the game was sort of simultaneously in development as we were doing Dark Sun. We thought, well, this is a natural. We'll just add that in. So honestly, the the thought Mm -hmm. process to include it in the first place was very was very light, very mechanical. There's a little synergy here. There's serendipity and timing. We didn't give it as much thought as we ha- we could have. So I think in hindsight, I, if I could reimagine it and introduce psionics to be a little more, I don't know, special and personal to each character that, that possesses it rather than... It, it, I always felt psionics was well received by the fans, but it essentially is just kind of a whole list of new magic spells that everybody has. And... I, I would have tried to make that, again, more of a personal experience to drive character interest and improve the stories and improve the role playing that was all around it. Interesting, interesting. Um, so Christopher, yeah. uh, Justin Moneymaker has got another question. And he says, uh, aside from the first painting of Neva, what other Brahm art really inspired the design team and what came from that? You know, once, uh, obviously that Neva painting was, uh, that was, that was something Brahm had created before Dark Sun was even a concept. And we looked at that and said, man, that's very Dark Sun. We didn't even know what it was at the time. So, yeah. Uh, and when we got together with Brown, he was, you know, obviously he had such a unique style. But even that was in development. If you look at the at Brown's work then and Brown's work now, obviously he's come he's come a long way. And uh, but he was he was forging a style, and we, we did something that I thought was very very smart. Well, I suppose two things artistically for the game. One was it was the first product line where we thought we should really we should really pay attention to what now gets commonly referred to as trade dress. And that is, let's make products that once you put them all next to each other on a shelf, they look like they're a family of things. So if you've collected them all at your home and you put them on the shelf, mm-hmm. they all look like they belong together. Or if they're in a store, not yet sold, they all look like they are part of the same bit. And and prior to that, I, I can't really speak to other companies completely, but 
certainly TSR wasn't doing anything like that. If you if you found if you bound up all of the uh, say Forgotten Realm products published to that point and put them all on the same shelf, you couldn't even tell they were part of the same game. They just there was no there was no rhyme or reason to that look. So so we, we did a lot for that. But that aside, on the other side of art, with you know engaging Brom to be the principal artist to create everything, I think the brilliance that we managed to muster at the time was we broke the mold right away. We just eliminated the mold, which was. Up to that point, designers invented things on paper and then instructed the artists to draw those things and paint those things. That was the mode. And it still remains the mode in a lot of art made for games these days. But we went to Brahm and said, Brahm, we want to invent things, Brahm, and we want you to illustrate them. But at the same time, we want you to just go ahead and illustrate stuff and we will fit it into the game. So a lot of a lot of these crazy humanoids and whatnot that he's got all over and whatnot and, and the bizarre vehicles and, and looks and clothing and weapons and all that stuff. We try, you know, we let him go crazy on that. And so so in, to, to specifically answer the question, at one point we asked Brom, why don't you just, uh, even in black and white, just sketch out a few dozen bizarre ass weapons, just just strange weapons that might be made of, you know, all of these materials that, that metal poor Athos can provide, like bone and chitin and, you know, just leather straps and all this other weird stuff that would be available. And he just invented all this really cool stuff that we eventually wrote into the game. And those aren't really like his his yeah. famous color paintings, but some of that stuff was just amazingly inspiring. It's like, oh my God, that he just had a real grasp for that stuff. Very imaginative uh, man, as you can tell from his from his art. And we took all that stuff and ran with it. And it was that synergy, that that dual direction of, of creative energy from art to written form and from written form to art that, you know, I think it really, it, it made Dark Sun more than it would have been otherwise. Nice, nice. Wow. So kind of moving on to, to kind of some of the later product, Frederick Leclerc asks, what did you think of the Black Spine storyline and how it fits into Athos? I don't have any idea. <laughs> What's the Black Spine storyline? All right. Yeah, I mean, that was a, a later one. Um, that one was... That one was um, it was basically about, uh, you know, it was one of the one of the bigger kind of higher level ones where people went into the Black Spine Mountains mm. um, and there's a lot of gith and it kind of talks about the history, you know, at least according to this adventure of of the gith and how the gith were sort of descended from the gith Yankee um, okay, because right. uh, I think it was a gith Yankee ship um, somehow crashed there. And so there were a lot of creatures that were sort of like from other worlds there. Okay. So it was almost like a, it was almost like a, uh, kind of like the barrier peaks of Dark Sun. Oh, okay. I kind of vaguely knew about that. What did you think about it and, and how it fits into Adam? Um, it, it was a storyline that was created after my time working uh, in detail on the game universe. And again, I, I, I'm not out to disparage anything that anybody else wrote. And, and I'm not especially familiar with it, but I, I know that it has to do with the Gith Yankee and how they, they mesh up with the Gith on the, on the, on the surface of Athos and that there, it, it touched on a lot of backstory and it touched on the, uh, the idea that, you know, there's, there's gadgets from a, a ship that has crashed and stuff like that, which is not necessarily the, the direction I wanted, uh, Athos to go, but, but quite frankly, from a spell jammer sort of point of view, which was, which is again, part of the same universe. And, uh, uh, in its own way, uh, I certainly can't object to that storytelling, but it wasn't it wasn't really kind of the direction that I was hoping that those things would go. So uh, I guess I'm of mixed emotion of that kind of a story. <laughs> sure. So the Gith are, you know, a major you know, they seem like they're sort of a major bad guy. They're kind of common. Mm-hmm. 
you know, more or less the orc of uh, of Dark Sun, <laughs> seemingly. Uh, did you have any kind of any ideas about them beyond sort of what was put in the original box? Set? Uh, not really, though. I th- you know, we, we named them Gift for a reason and, and really did. Uh, we we figured they had a tie to the Gith Yankee right away. We just never really explored in detail what that would be. Sure. But other than that, they just seemed like a... Sometimes it was nothing more than, would this look good wandering through the desert? Yes, let's stick it in the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 Brom, you know, had some amazing images of gifts. So <laughs> right? I, I love, right? I love using them. They are definitely some of my favorite, <laughs> uh, favorite enemies. So a question from Twitter at Guthe writes. Mm-hmm. I guess we sort of actually talked about a lot of this. Basically, did you keep up with uh, with Dark Sun after your involvement ended? And uh, there were some Dragon Magazine versions. Uh, we did some at Athos.org, the 4E versions. Did you read any of that stuff or, or, or you, had you moved on to other things? You know, the, the life of a gypsy game designer is such that you're so involved in the project that's in front of you at the moment that often you can't just kind of keep an eye on other things. And and I will confess that for years after my own heavy involvement in Dark Sun, I really only tangentially uh, got contact with the other things that were being put out for the game. Um, I wasn't involved mm-hmm. in a specific campaign. I wasn't playing any of that stuff. So, I mean, I knew about Athens.org and the stuff that you were up to. I would visit there occasionally. I, you know, I would see product and, and you know, take a glance through it. But as as involved as I was, it's you know it's uh, it's it's a shame to admit, but you just can't keep up with everything, and a lot of that stuff just you know I never got around to uh, to to getting involved with it. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any shame in that. I mean, you've worked on a, a phenomenal number of books and uh, and games. Yeah, if you kept on up on all of those, you wouldn't do anything else. So uh, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, you know, the mind of the creative is definitely you know, like you said, you kind of move on and and start working on other projects. So uh, no shame in that at all. <laughs> Um, so Mind Cosmos asks, uh, what is your favorite city state and why? Uh, you know, it's, I'm just still a big tier guy. You know, it's just the uh, it's sort of the heart of the original uh, slave rebellion and all of that, which which still to me is the is is, is kind of my favorite portion of uh, of the story. I think it just it just it it, mm-hmm. it had it, for me, it kind of crossed over at the time between sort of a couple of different genres of, of history, I guess, that, that I, I like. Nah, not really history, I guess, but, but the, the whole idea of the pulp fantasy that we were pulling from came through very strongly in, in the city of Tyr. And at the same time, there was almost like an American revolutionary sort of sort of feel to it at the same time, which, um, you know, none of that was ever written down or anything like that. But to me, it was like, you know, these, uh, this is kind of a, there's a, there's a founding fathers sort of thing going on here with, uh, Mm-hmm. We're, we're gonna we're not gonna do mm-hmm. things this way anymore we've got we've got new plans and they don't include you so and and that's a it was to me at the time i remember thinking that that's a very american tale and 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 it just felt it felt very right so yeah tear tear is my place that's where i want to hang out <laughs> yeah lots of uh a lot of campaigns ran from tear you know that was kind of the the, the mm-hmm. base um, and then of course you know you had the book uh city state tear came out that was a great book so uh, the Wander, uh, Felix Gonzalez from Twitter asks a bunch of questions here. Uh, we'll hit a couple of them. And these are sort of mm-hmm. lore-based. Uh, he asks, what is the Blue Shrine? Now, the Blue Shrine is sort of mentioned in the Wander's journal. Doesn't really talk much about it. So do you have any recollections of, of what you kind of envisioned that to be at, at any point? Um, you know, I don't. But quite frankly, I bet Troy does. When you get Troy on the show, ask him about the Blue Shrine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. 
So he asked, what is the great one? But I think the great one probably wasn't added in later lore. It talked about, you know, the, the, an evangelion called the great, great one. And so I don't think that was in any of the stuff that you wrote. Do you, do you have any recollections of that? No, nothing. If, if they made something called the great one, it had nothing to do with anything I created. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that was later. Um, here's a good question. Was another dragon ever planned in another region? When we first started, we did not think so. We thought that there might be a finite number of dragons, and they're all basically defined here. But obviously, more were created as the mm-hmm. as the game world was developed. But the original plan was not to have any more. So, so yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of where that went. So that brings a question. That brings a question that I've had, and that that I've, other people have had. Basically, if you have these, you know, these seven dragon kings and and the dragon all in this one area, the size of mm-hmm. Colorado, like why didn't they spread out? Like what what kind of kept them in this area in the mm-hmm. table? Yeah, good question. It's a very good question, and I'm not sure we ever created a strong reason to do that other than we designed it, and they were all in this region. (laughs) (laughs) If if, uh, anything, I would tell you right now would be would be almost an invention. So I don't think I don't think we ever had considered. uh, We didn't really consider the world too far beyond the map we were making. In that, I I guess when you're in the Mm -hmm. process of creating a an environment like that. And uh, we thought, well, let's just design what we can fit within this. And, and we wanted a finite area to deal with without sort of even alluding to what was on the rest of what mm-hmm. would potentially be a whole Earth-sized world out there. But we didn't necessarily know, frankly, if, if this game line wasn't that successful, we would never talk about anything that was anywhere else. And if and if it became very successful, we'd probably expand it in all directions. So <laughs> right. I don't think there was a preconceived right. notion, at least not in my thinking. Now, again, Troy wrote an awful lot of the lore that had to do with you know who were the original uh, Dragon Kings and and uh, what were they, what are their backstories and whatnot. So he might have had some other thoughts on that, much like I had thoughts about creating a whole Thrykreen mm-hmm. Empire that I probably never even shared with Troy at the time. He probably had some ideas that he never shared with me. So uh, by all means, uh, feel him out on those. <laughs> all right. Um, so, you know, the dragon is supposed to be, you know, the, the most powerful kind of creature um, of in Dark Sun. Um, and actually, mm-hmm. there was uh, just an article that was like the top 10 most powerful creatures in mm-hmm. D&D. And uh, the dragon of Athos was number one. Well, there you go. That, w- that was interesting cause, because it had uh, 25 D12 breath <laughs> weapon. Um, but uh, so, so, yeah. So Felix asks, was the Tarrasque ever considered for Dark Sun? Yeah, you know, it was because the Tarrasque, of course, is, is famed in song and story in all of, of D&D. So we thought about putting Tarrasques in, and in many ways, it's kind of a natural because it's gigantic and destructive and all of that. But then to me, the Tarrasque, to have Tarrasques running around started to feel a little Godzilla-like in uh, in a in a universe that wasn't necessarily <laughs> going in that direction. So to, to not compete with the Dragon Kings themselves uh, and to not not you know sort of had that have that uh you know vast monster feel we just elect to keep them out uh i i think it might have felt a little too kitsch to include include them interesting, interesting. Mm. yeah so there were there's definitely a couple of other huge creatures that ended up coming out mm-hmm. um in some of the later monsters compendium sure. that were you know a very similar sort of like the soa <laughs> which was basically this rampager um and so there were definitely a couple of things that 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 fit that bill but that's a good point 
here's his next question. And this is a really good one. Um, Something that uh, pretty much every Dark Sun fan probably wants to know. And that is, who is the Wanderer? <laughs> you know, we get, uh, you know, one of the great things about Dark Sun. Uh, the thing that I love is that there's an unreliable narrator mm-hmm. in the Wanderer. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the Wanderer's Journal and the Wanderer's Chronicle. Right. And it's all written from this one guy's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you can tell us about it, um, you know, 30 years later? Well, what I can tell you is that we decided to have a character that could tell these things. And uh, we didn't want to, you know, uh, we didn't want to really give him a lot of definition because that would start to color the tale, right? Um, if you knew he was mm-hmm. of this nature, then the story he's telling is is tainted in that direction. But um, we purposely kept him vague. We wanted the voice to remain consistent, but that was hard to do over a lot of writers and editors touching the product. But for the most part, the theme of The Wanderer was kept consistent, and I thought it was a good storytelling device within laying out a role-playing universe. My own visions of The Wanderer don't necessarily match up with anybody else's visions of The Wanderer who had the opportunity to write uh, those kinds of things. But uh, but for me, just for me personally, this is this is not official lore. But uh, The Wanderer was basically um, was basically Athos's uh, Clint Eastwood character from uh, from his famous spaghetti westerns. Right? He's <laughs> just he's 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 just out there. He's he he has almost no other existence than to be a part of that dangerous environment, and and therefore is is a very reliable um, reliable source of uh, information about uh, about this this very savage place. Wow. Awesome, awesome. That is all the questions the the fans have. Uh, Wayne, do you have any more questions for for Tim about Dark Sun? Maybe another couple hours worth. But, uh, <laughs> I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, actually, it, it's it, it's interesting because we we really love our fans. I mean, they sure. they come up with some really interesting questions, and and it's great to see what conversation and what things that spark, especially that wanderer question. That was a that's always been one of those really hotly <laughs> debated and contested um, topics. So definitely good to see what you were thinking when, I, like, obviously there was a lot of writers, but just to see like you know you're the designer of the game, and that's actually that was one of my favorite parts. Was I didn't get this book where it's like it's just as dull, whatever. It's literally someone's writing a journal and walking around writing a journal and telling you about yeah. it. Yeah. And, and it keeps the, the mystery yeah. alive, right? I mean, for, as in my own evolution as a creator and as a writer of uh, fiction and role-playing products, um, it was the first time, uh, and any design I had done up to that point in, in trying to describe a setting in which you're going to play a role-playing game was very dry and mechanical and to the point, and it's just a data dump download. This mm-hmm. is the thing I'm describing. It is like this. It is not like that. You can do this with it. You can't do that with it. Very, very straightforward. And this is the first time I was I was really engaged by the possibility of, of uh, using the tone and method of delivery to set even more of a stage and convey even more information in that way as well. So I was new to the idea of doing anything like that at that time. So and I'm, I'm glad we all experimented with that and, and went forward with it. And I'm glad that the fans still still respond to that as a as, as a, a mysterious but intriguing part of the setting. Yeah. So. Talking about, um, you know, doing things a little differently, you know, you talked about the trade dress and, and having this, the wander as, as our narrator. Um, Dark Sun did a lot of other things that were new and interesting. Tell us about uh, the idea of, uh, you know, like all of the adventures, you know, they had that great flip book style. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, they also all came with uh, kind of short stories that fleshed out the world a little bit. Yeah. Do you have any recollections or stories about those? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'll take I'll take all the credit and all the blame for <laughs> for the flip book adventure format. That was that was purely my concept. I went down and uh, armed with the knowledge that I thought that our universe being so different than other universes that we needed to supply constant visuals. Mm-hmm. I thought to the the game master and 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 the players to keep them sort of involved in how different and unique and we thought wonderful this place is. Oh, so wow. how could we create something that would forward face to the players and give them a cool thing to look at all the time rather than rather than a simple adventure book with some art that the the, the uh, dungeon master might hold out to you so you can look at for a moment and then pull back so you can refer to the book. How could we better do that? And I, I worked with our production people about some possibilities and, and we came up with these flip books as an affordable option um, and, and way to make that happen. And, and with that came the parameters of, well, you've kind of got to design this thing. So the, the picture represents the game master facing materials that he is running at the same time. And from a design standpoint, it worked great. And I think I think most people enjoyed the adventures themselves. Where, where the system yeah. broke down was the way we chose to package it in a relatively light sort of tuck box that held the yeah. whole thing. These things did not hold up to the rigors of the merchandising of the day. By the time they got manufactured and shipped to a distributor and shipped to a store, and they just they tended to get crushed, and they were they were kind of ruined before people ever got a chance to even buy them, which really just just hurt the overall look of the line. Mm-hmm. And because of the demands of the art, uh, the the further we got into making those, we just didn't have the time or the resources and and the art on those. Tended to decline. The quality of the art kind of declined quickly over the first few, and it was it was just because we had such an ambitious schedule of putting them out. More ambitious than we really had the artists available to to do it all. So that's that's you know lesson learned. Lesson learned there. Sure. One thing I really liked though was that we did put the fiction in each one of those, uh, just to keep trying to tell more of this tale. Again, I you know my personal thought was we're going so far afield from what our D and D fans, A D and D fans, were used to that we kind of need to keep stoking the flame there of why we think this is great and and hopefully you will think this is great too so that at every turn we would feed them a little more to help inspire and or remind or uh, you know refresh the whole vision that we were trying to get across mm-hmm. and a lot of those stories I thought were quite good yeah yeah well that was amazing I love talking to you uh, about Dark Sun you know when we <laughs> talked before about Dragon Kings it was great you know I can never I can never thank you enough uh, it's the first <laughs> world I DM'd um, awesome. and it, it you know once I was out of uh, out of gaming for a while it pulled me back with fourth edition into gaming so uh, you know I can never thank you enough Thank you, Tim. Um, and <laughs> what are you? Uh, what are you working on these days? Uh, these days, I am the uh, whole studio manager for Ulysses North America, which you know we've got a pretty substantial list of good role playing game lines that we're working on and publishing even now. We've already done uh, the translation of uh, the. Uh, German fantasy role-playing game Das Schwarze Auge, and we have that released in the United States in English as uh, The Dark Eye. You'll see that in stores. Uh, in addition, we uh, we have all of the rights to the original Torg game, which we've released as Torg Eternity, which has mm-hmm. had a couple of very successful Kickstarters and has, has garnered a, a very strong audience so far. Similarly, we, we picked up uh, Fading Suns, and we're we're very lucky to have Bill Bridges working hard on that for uh, a launch of that as a complete role-playing game line just later this year. 
But uh, my days uh, right now are completely absorbed with the fact that we have a, a terrific license to create Wrath and Glory, which is Warhammer 40,000 role play, a license from Games Workshop, which uh, personally I love that universe. And uh, Ross Watson is our guy heading up that line. And uh, we've got that in a pre-sale right now. Of course, I don't know when this broadcasts. So right now, <laughs> as of recording this, it is uh, in a pre-sale and we're going to have that out into stores in uh in September. So uh, that's definitely worth checking out as well. Definitely. If you can link Ooh. to that stuff, then oh, yeah, check absolutely. that stuff out. Um, and where, uh, where can we find you online, Tim? Uh, if you have uh, any, any social media presence? <laughs> I'm surprisingly little social media presence. <laughs> um, uh, no, yeah. So, I mean, so uh, we, we, we can probably find you then at uh, Ulysses, Ulysses North America.com. Yeah, look at look at me for at Ulysses North America. That's that's the place to find me these days. I am I am completely absorbed in my work. All right, and uh, Wayne, how about you? Where can we find you online? Uh, easiest way to contact us is probably uh, Visionary Comms for myself or Dark Sun uh, Facebook group. Uh, I do try to go on there once in a while and take a look at things. Otherwise, you can hit us up on our email or uh, just listen to us. We'll 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 we're we're having a more consistent schedule now, so uh, you'll hear you'll hear this uh, in um you'll you hear this soon. Or sooner or later, hopefully. Awesome. <laughs> and Robert, yourself? Yeah, for me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Radu76. Um, I'm on the Dark Sun Facebook group, the Dark Sun Google Plus group, Athos.org. Uh, if you need to email me, you can hit me at Radu at Athos.org. You can hit me up on my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Robert Aducci, where I, uh, I run Dark Sun games every month, as well as uh, some Adventures League games. So if you want to play any of those, jump on there. Thank you again so much, Tim. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm honored to have a chance to chat about old times. It's always fun for me. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, thanks so much for coming on and uh, you know, taking a little bit of time out of your schedule. And you know, with uh, with all the projects you're working on, it's, it's got to be busy. And you know, we're talking about something that's you know going on 30 years old soon. <laughs> yes, it is amazing, huh? Thank you, listeners. Thank you for for tuning in. Um, we hope to have uh, more information. You know, fingers crossed for a, a release information. But uh, we'd love to have Tim back on the on the show as well. So uh, if you like that, just let us know. And uh, but for now, signing off. Thanks everybody, and uh, have a great day. Bye now. Bye bye. Bone, Stone, and Obsidian is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.